is worthy, amen. Would you stand? We'll continue with our song service. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 says, Thereso-ever, or, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. It's good to be in the Lord's house today. Look forward to what the Lord has for us today. Brother Branson, would you, uh, Preston, would you open us in a word of prayer? Singing hymn number 215,
stand once again. We'll sing hymn number 247, Save to Save.
to open the eyes of the blind to prove that he was Lord. And he knew they'd still doubt him when he fed 5,000 with the lunch of one little boy. To cleanse every leper wouldn't settle forever the fact that God had come down and there'd be only one proof that he was telling the truth when his body was laid in the ground he had to rise to to show he had not risen there'd be no hope for heaven no chance for eternal life but since he has conquered death sting forever i now have a reason to shout because from a dark lonely tomb The greatest sunrise broke through when my Savior came walking out. He had to rise. He had to rise. To show he was holy. To show he was God. He had to rise.
Well, it's our chance to sing now. Let's sing uh, hymn number 174. Let's stand as we sing. Let's lift this up to the Lord. Think about the words of this song, My Jesus, I Love Thee. You may be seated.
Praise the Lord for that. We're going to have Brother Humbert come and preach for us. Get your smiles out, okay? You ought to be joyful in the Lord. Amen. He's to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. It's good to be back in the state of Kansas and especially in this church. I had forgotten some things and I remembered the friendly people, but my oh my, you got heavenly music in this place. I mean, I've been about ready to have a Bapticostal fit over there, but I didn't want to lose my dignity, but it may uh, slip away anyhow. That, I'm telling you, you've got wonderful, wonderful music, and if that 
What is it? And someone said, if that doesn't light your fire, then your wood's wet. And that's a fact, because that was tremendous, tremendous song. The message and the delivery of it was excellent, and I thank you for that. This morning in Sunday school, in case you haven't heard, we're having a revival meeting this week. And uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you all know that. I know sometimes I announce for weeks, months. We have prayer cottages, etc., for revival meetings. And I still have people come in and say, oh, we have a guest speaker today. What is all that about? And you just want to boom and knock them into next year. But when you're a pastor, you don't do that. You just say, oh, yeah, it was my fault. I probably didn't tell you 65 times instead of 60 times. I should have told you. Forgive. But now I'm not pastoring anymore. So I really don't care what people think. Hallelujah. Because I don't have to worry about whether or not you're coming back. I'm just, I'm just an evangelist or whatever. Plus, I'm old. Have you ever noticed how old people say things that just sort of like, wow, where did that come from? (laughs) And you young people are thinking, I never realized that. Well, here here it is. We know we're going to die pretty soon. And we've been holding a lot in for a long time. And and so we want to get it off our chest before Jesus calls us home. Hallelujah. (laughs) So... Well, we're having revival meeting, and I don't know what that means to you. I know what it means to God, and I don't know that it's wrong to have different applications for revival. We do in our church, and most churches do. But I thought before I'd get started preaching, I'd kind of check the audience out to see what you're expecting, what you've been praying for. And so, let me ask you, what, what is revival? Someone tell me. Just This isn't a right or wrong. It's, don't be afraid. Yes, ma'am? A spirit-filled church. Someone else. Revival. What does revival mean? Renewal. Someone else. Revival of the Lord. Yes. Anybody else? Well, I only got so much time, so I'm going to help you because I don't want to wait on you all day. That's for sure. Um, Wouldn't uh, revival mean... uh, It's a humble admission that something's not what it used to be. Would that be fair? Would it be a a humble confession that something or someone, or we'll even go personal, we'll say, we aren't what we once were, or what we should be, or what we could be? Would that be a fair application of the definition of revival. I think all of us understand what the word revive means. It means to bring back to life, implying there was life first of all. But somehow it's gone dormant, even close to dying, and there's no activity, and so we're praying for revival. Come back to life. Are we on the same page? And so we're talking primarily to Christians. So when we say America needs revival, uh, we say that because If we don't have it, we can blame the politicians. We can blame the president. And so we're going to work hard to get a different president in next time because that will bring revival to our country, right? Can I say this? No president has ever made America great. No president has. If America was ever great, it's because God blessed America. And God will bless any nation that humbles themselves to Him. 
The Bible says sin is a reproach to any people. God blesses those that live righteous lives, that acknowledge Him. If America will ever be great, it will be because God blessed America. The problem is not in the White House. The problem is in the church house. The Bible says judgment must first begin in the house of the Lord. True or false? When God's people get right, God gave us the formula, how much clearer do we need it? Do you know 2 Chronicles 7.14? Now you'll, you'll agree with that passage if it's for everybody else. But if it's pointed to you or to me, then we're going to say that's Old Testament. That doesn't apply to the church. Decide which way you're going to go with it now. It does apply to the local church. If you are God's people, then it applies to you. He says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. That's a problem right there. Because most of us, especially in our kind of church, fundamental, independent, narrow-minded, King James only, red-letter edition, no fun Baptist. That's us. We don't think we're part of the problem. It's everybody else that's part of the problem. The evangelical think it's the, the, the wickedness in our land. The fundamental Baptists think it's, uh, it's the evangelicals. The independent independents think it's us, narrow-minded, but not narrow-enough-minded. We're all looking to someone else. God says, if my people, which are called by my name, humble themselves. The reason why, one of the reasons why we don't have revivals is because we're content to live without it. We might even go so far as to say, we need revival in our church. Now, we won't say it publicly, but if we don't have it, it's because it's the preacher's fault, or the deacon's, or one of the leaders in the church. But do you know the first revival in Scripture is not recorded in a nation, is not recorded in a church? but recorded in a home. Of all the years that I've been in ministry, nearly 50 years now, I have never in one time in my home church have someone stand up and say, Preacher, we need prayer. I know we're in church on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, involved in several in ministries, but the truth of the matter is we're not what we used to be. We know the difference. Outwardly, people commend us for our faithfulness. Outwardly, people look up to us as being pillars of the church, but the truth is, we need revival. Never once have I heard that. But until we have revival in our homes, we probably won't see revival in our churches. Until we have revival in our churches, America is doomed. And can I say this kindly? God doesn't need America. America needs God. 
an American can go down the drain. God's not going out of business. There'll be another location where people's whose heart is perfect toward him, where he will show himself strong. But that can happen here with God's people. And so this week, I'm just going to follow 2 Chronicles 7.14. We're going to follow what God has laid out for us. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. And this morning, I want to address that subject from Luke 16. I was a youth director once. It's been quite a while. That's all I ever wanted to be was a youth director. We had a winter retreat and took the kids to the camp and we were in the cabin and thought I heard some noise outside. So I went outside to see what was going on and, and uh, <clears throat> when the kids heard me coming, they quickly discarded the evidence of their sin. And as I approached them, I noticed on the ground a small red glow. I asked them, have you guys been smoking? No, man. And the opening of his mouth smelt like Marlboro country. He then offered me a stick of gum while he shoved three sticks in his mouth and began to chew rapidly. I said, are you sure you haven't been smoking? No, man, honest. Honest, I I haven't been smoking. Well, I usually take people at their word, but I did encourage them to go back into their room. The next evening, after hours, you know, in the dark, they always woke up after dark. They slept through morning devotions, often sleep through breakfast, slept through chapel from time to time. They slept throughout the day, but at sunset, they were all eyes. I always wondered why they loved darkness rather than light. That night, while everyone was sleeping, I I heard noises again outside, so I ran outside, and I couldn't locate the fleet-footed beasts. So I went back into the room, and in the room, I could hear the sounds of a rushing mighty wind. The kind you hear after a a guy has run a hundred-yard dash. And I followed the sound to the bunk, the upper bunk, and asked the young man to get out of his bunk. There was no response. There was pretense that he was asleep. So I asked him again to please get out of his bunk. No response, so I helped him down out of his bunk. When he stood there, as close as I could get to his face without being falsely accused as trying to kiss him, I said, were you outside just now? He said, no, man, honest. Honest to God. That's quite a statement. Honest to God. The message I'm going to preach this morning will not be a profound message, nor will it be a revelation of any new truth. But hopefully it will be a rediscovery of a forgotten, yea, even forsaken virtue of truth, and that is, honesty is the best policy. 
if we want to experience revival, a true spiritual healing, we must first of all humble ourselves before God. We must be honest to God. I'm going to read in Luke 16 the conclusion of the parable of the unjust steward. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of the passage of Scripture. Commencing in verse number 10. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot Serve God and mammon. I want to draw your attention to 13 words in verse number 10. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. And from the text this morning, I want us to learn and be reminded that a man that is not honest in small matters is not honest in anything. Let me repeat that. I'm going to teach and preach. Sunday school students know what I mean. When I teach, I will talk to you. When I preach, I will yell. I'm going to teach and preach today because it's imperative that if God's going to send revival anywhere, we've got to follow God's order. God's plan. And too many of us want to run to turn from their wicked ways. But if we don't follow the order that God has laid out, you may turn from your wicked ways, but like a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool will to his folly. We must begin by, first of all, humbling ourselves before God. I want to repeat that thesis A man that is not honest in small matters is not honest in anything. This morning I'm going to preach a little bit on honest to God. Let's pray. Father, I'm going to do the best I can as fast as I can. I pray that this eternal bound audience will listen and be hearers of what the Spirit has to say to us. Father, we're here to be a blessing and encouragement to the church. Father, we need revival. We, we, we need revival, not only in our country, but we need it in our country because we need it in our churches in our country. Our churches are so well organized today that we can actually have church without you even showing up. And we actually enjoy it. Oh God, humble us today. Help us to see from your word where we need to be honest to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Jesus said, he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. He was simply teaching us that a man that is not honest in small matters is not honest in anything. 
something else, if he appears to be an honest man, if he appears to be an upright man, if he appears to be a a man or a woman in good standing and has good character, but they're not honest in small matters, there's something else that governs their life. But it's not honesty. When I say that a man can be dishonest and yet appear to be honest, he's dishonest in small matters, I want to clear the floor a little bit to make sure you understand what I do not mean. I do not mean that if a man is guilty of petty thefts, that he will certainly rob a bank. You know what petty thefts are. Trying on an outfit at a store, wearing it to the desired activity you wanted to buy it for, returning it and being refunded. Folks, that's dishonest. That may may seem small, but if we're dishonest in those small petty thefts, potential of big thefts is around the corner. I do not mean that if a man indulges in lustful thoughts and fantasies, that he will certainly commit adultery. I do not mean that if a man covets and plays the lottery, that he will certainly steal or gamble and cheat. I do not mean that if a man tells half-truths, that he will certainly tell outright or bald-faced lies. I do not mean that if a man drinks a little socially, that he will certainly become a drunk. I do not mean that if a man is mean and loses his temper, that he will certainly beat his wife and children, yea, even murder. I do not mean that if a man defrauds the government, such as in our taxes, that he will certainly rob the United States Treasury. But I will say that if you are guilty of these small sins, Habitually, you're a strong candidate to be involved in the big sins. But I want to reemphasize what I do mean. And it's exactly what I said earlier, that if a man is not honest in small matters, he's not honest in anything, regardless of the image he may portray. If a man or a woman appears honest, but is dishonest in small matters, it shows that he is governed by another spirit other than honesty. Some who appear as honest people in public, when in reality they're not, may be governed by the fear of disgrace. Some wouldn't think uh, uh, they may not pay back their personal loans. They may not... Uh, repay personal favors or keep promises to kids or to friends or maybe even in their faith promise giving. They're not going to fulfill it. It's not that big. Nobody really knows it. It's between me and God. It's undercover. And God understands. But they always pay their mortgage. They always pay the bank loan. It's because they're fearful of disgrace or losing their home and being disgraced. Some will lust, but not commit adultery. Some will cuss under their breath, but not out loud. Not because they're honest, but because they have fear of disgrace. Some are motivated by fear of hurting his business or livelihood. I sadly admit, when I was in Bible college, in Bible college, I worked at a car rental agency. 
My job was to take in the cars that were returned, and we would wash them up, we would change the oil, we'd, we'd get them, you know, serviced and ready to go for the next renter. And when times were slow, we would bring our car, our personal car, into the garage. And we would change the oil and clean the car and wax it and all that. And every now and then, we might even put a little gas in the tank. I mean, it was no big deal. It was just common practice with all the employees. Didn't have to sneak it. We just, we just did it. Now, granted, gas was only 30 cents a gallon back then. Uh, so it wasn't a whole lot of money, but we took that which did not belong to us. It was five years into ministry when God brought that to my mind. That I had stolen that gasoline. And I couldn't shake it. I made a promise to God next time in, that I'm in Springfield, Missouri, I'll go to that rental agency and, and confess it and just let them know what I did and offer to pay. And I calculated, add a little bit more to it. I went back and met my boss and he was still there and he looked old when I left. He looked the same when I got there. He hadn't aged a bit. That's an advantage of looking old younger. I've looked old since I've been 30 years old. And so I don't change much. My friends say, man, Humbert, you never change. Well, when you look 90, when you're 30, <laughs> not a whole lot of change can go. <laughs> I went in and I said to him, I said, you know, we laughed and chuckled a little bit and exchanged pleasantries. And then I said to him, I said, you know, when I worked here, I did some things I shouldn't have done. And he just said, oh. I said, yeah, you know, we gassed up our cars and waxed and I said man I, God's just really convicted me and I want a clear conscience with God and I'm a Christian and I should know better and I'm from I was at a Bible college and that wasn't a good testimony to you or anyone else but bottom line is I, I don't want I don't want to disobey God and act like it doesn't mean anything and so I just came to tell you and I brought some money to pay for the gasoline that I figured out and he just smiled and he said you know Bruce this is really wonderful. So I just got saved two months ago. He said, and to think that your relationship with God is just as important now as it was when you were in Bible college is incredibly encouraging. He said, and quite frankly, I can't take your money. The books have already been closed. And so I would just tell you, give it to the cause of Christ and I'll just say, you're forgiven from our point of view. And I'm sure that God has forgiven you as well. But thank you for coming back. You see, I couldn't have admitted that, or I didn't admit that when I was younger, because I didn't want to lose my job. You don't walk in and say, hey, I've been stealing from the company. Now, people may appear to be honest, but if they're sneaking the little things, it just shows they're governed by something else. Some are fearful of governmental law. Some will lie to the family, but not in a court of law. Some will lose their temper habitually, but they don't murder. It's not because they're honest, they're just fearful of civil law. Some are governed by the love of praise. They just love people to praise them for being a, a man of character and a woman of character. I'm going to tell you that most people that do have character, if they're praised for that, generally speaking, their head goes down. 
because they know themselves better than the people praising them. And even at my best state, I'm still just a sinner saved by grace. If there's any good thing, it's because God has wrought a work in me. Quite frankly, I'm uncomfortable with the compliments. Unless you want to compliment me for my good-looking mustache, and I agree with you on that one. Some people are motivated by self-righteous. They're religious people. I'm just saying simply today, if we're not honest in small matters, it's sure that we are governed by something other than honesty in big matters. Does that make sense? And as we pray for revival, we must humble ourselves before God. We need to be honest to God. It's vitally important that we're honest to God because if we're not honest to God, then we're going to be dishonest in four different areas. Let me suggest them. Number one, you'll be dishonest to yourself. How many in here, let, let me take a poll. I didn't ask your preacher what time you got, and I asked another man in church what time you normally get out, and it was way too early, and I thought, shoot, I'm not listening to him anyway. He's not the pastor. <laughs> let me ask you, how many would say, preacher, I'm not, I'm not bragging. I'm not boasting. I'm just, you're asking a question, I'm going to give you a matter of fact, a testimony. I'm on fire for the Lord. I mean, I'm on fire. And what does that mean? On fire for the Lord means a lot of things, but I can narrow it down to this. You read your Bible passionately daily. Not only do you read it, you meditate on it. You're thinking on it. Not just in your 15-minute Devo so you can check it off the list and do your own thing the rest of the day. When you're on fire, remember when you got saved? Man, you couldn't you couldn't stop thinking about God, His Word. You're reading your Bible. You're praying. You have a passionate prayer let. You have prayer time that you, you feel like you're in the presence of God. You see answers to your prayer. It's not just a, a token time. It's not just a, a Santa Claus wish list that you throw out there. You have meaningful conversation with God. You have miracles to show in your life that God has granted because of you asking Him. When I say you're on fire for God, you tell others about Christ. You're a faithful witness to Christ. You could stand and tell me a soul that you led to Christ in the last several months, but certainly you could tell me of souls that you've witnessed to in the last several weeks. When a man's on fire for God, those, things are, those three things are going to be prominent in his life and some other things, but those are things that we as a, a outsiders can see. You're reading your Bible, you're praying, you have a, a hot prayer life, and, and you're witnessing to others. Now, how many in here would say, preacher, I'm not bragging, but you're the one asking. I, I'm thankful to God that right now, because I know what it's like to be on the other side, right now, I'm on fire for the Lord. Would you raise your hand? Anybody like that? All right, let's, let's take a poll the other way. How many of you would say, preacher, I'm in church, so I'm not dead, I'm not anti-Christ, but the truth of the matter is, my spiritual life is actually kind of cold. I mean, I don't read my Bible very often. I know I should, but I don't read it daily. It's not like I really am into it. 
I don't memorize it. I don't meditate on it. And don't ask me the last time I studied it. I can tell you the starting lineup of my favorite sporting team, but I can't tell you the 12 disciples' names. Um, I know the Bible's important, but I'm just not into it. Now, how many would say, uh, I know I, I pray, I pray for the food, but as far as a meaningful prayer time, that's you know, it, just, just not the case. Witnessing, man, I haven't witnessed anyone in so long I'd be embarrassed to even try to think of the last time I witnessed to someone. How many would say, that's me, I'm cold? One, two, three, four, seven, seven, eight that I saw. So that tells me that the majority of the room isn't hot and isn't cold. Most of us, by our own confession, admit that we're somewhere in the middle. You know what that's called? Lukewarm. See, you know your Bible. And you also know what God thinks of that. Revelation chapter 3. God says, you talk a big game. You talk about... All the fundamentals. Quite frankly, you don't even realize how bad you are. God says, I'd rather you be hot or cold. But because you're lukewarm, you make me sick. Now, folks, I didn't say that. I'm just a doctor coming into the room saying, hey, we've got a problem. Are you with me? It doesn't mean you don't have value, that I don't appreciate you, that I don't like you, that I don't want to be around you. This generation is way, way, way too sensitive. I'm just a doctor of souls. I'm just a preacher of the Word of God that is trying to reason with his fellow laborers Fellow believers, we say we want revival, but we really don't. How do we get lukewarm water? Well, if you understand the geography of Laodicea, they didn't have any springs. They went to a neighboring area where they got hot springs. They went to another area where they had cold springs. And you get lukewarm by mixing hot and cold. And that's the way most churches are today. They immerse their life in in the Word of God in church. They love good gospel singing. Then they go and immerse their life in the cold, sinful stuff of the world. Most Christians today spend more time watching the entertainment of the world than they do reading their Bible. Do I speak the truth or not? And we wonder why we don't see life in the church other than what we manufacture in and of ourselves, and quite frankly, I'm thankful for it. I don't want to be around a bunch of grouchy old people. But wouldn't it be nice if we had the joy of the Lord when we left this place? If we're not honest to God, we'll be dishonest 
to ourself. These people, they, they fooled themselves. Galatians 6.3 says, For if a man thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Perhaps the, the saddest verse in all the Bible is in Judges 16.20, speaking of Samson. He wist not the Lord was departed from him. James 1.22 says, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves The fruit of the Spirit, did you hear that? The fruit, singular, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. You know, nine characteristics of the singular fruit of the Holy Spirit. Some people think, well, I'm not very loving, but I got patience. That might be your temperament. You're still in the flesh. When you're filled with the Spirit, all nine characteristics come into existence in your life. If I... If I take a sponge and, and I have a bucket of orange juice and I push that sponge in the bucket of orange juice and then I pull it out and squeeze it, what's going to come out of that sponge? Orange juice. If I wash it totally clean and then I immerse it in a, in a bucket of milk and I, and I squeeze that sponge, what's going to come out of that sponge? Milk. So whatever's inside that sponge, when pressure is applied will be exposed to others. And so when pressures of life come and and squeeze us, what comes out indicates what's inside. And what's inside indicates where we have immersed ourselves. If you immerse yourself in the Word of God and in the work of God, when the pressures of life squeeze you, you're going to have the nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit come out. And today we almost think that's weird. In fact, Vance Havner said Christians today live so subnormal that if they lived normal, they would be considered abnormal of what God expects. Is it possible for the doctor to tell you I've got cancer and you not whine and cry like, oh, no, Well, praise be to God. That's His will for my life. That's fine with me. Doc, do you know Jesus as your Savior? For to me to live is Christ. To die is gain. We're going to try to fight this cancer, but I'm going to tell you what, I'm not going to be afraid of it. I'm not going to let it govern me the rest of my life. I was 49 years old when I had open heart surgery. The first time I went in in the table and and when I was in there, I'll tell you what, I, I'm not any, any different than any man in this room. But when I was in there, I didn't care about my car. I didn't care about my church. I didn't care about anything. All I knew is God was with me. And there on the table, I was able to have prayer with all the nurses and doctors surrounding me. And it seemed almost like church to me. That shouldn't be abnormal. That should be normal. If we're not honest to God, we'll be dishonest to ourselves. We'll actually pat ourselves on the back that we are fundamental, independent, narrow-minded, King James only, red-letter edition, no fun Baptist. God help us. Secondly, if we're not honest to God, we'll be dishonest to sin. 
If a man hated sin because it was sin, he would no more indulge in one sin than any other sin. James says, Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. God is simply saying is, If you break one commandment, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. And I think all of us would admit we've all broken commandment number one. We've had other gods before him. So we're guilty of them all. We should hate all sin. When a man can excuse his sin or his weakness in a particular temptation, then he is dishonest with sin because he's not honest with God. How easy it is for us to look at other people's sin and compare ourselves with them. Well, at least I'm not a a murderer. At least I'm not an adulterer. And uh, at least I'm not an adulterer as often as he's an adulterer. Are you with me? We're not careful. Then we get to the other extreme. Eh, we're all sinners. What's the big deal? It's no big deal. Oh, but it is. And we as a church need to wake up to that effect. Sin has a horrible consequence. And when we get lackadaisical and say, well, his sin's not as bad. All sin is bad. I mean, stealing's bad. Murder's bad. Adultery's bad. Homosexuality's bad. Abortion is bad because it is murder. Pornography is bad. Laziness is bad. Tardiness is bad. Gossiping is bad. Do you, you, we all hate certain sins. Usually we hate the sin that hurts us the most. You ever consider what God hates? Doesn't leave it to your imagination. He says in Proverbs 6, there's six things I hate. Seven is an abomination. What's number seven? Well, you say, what's an abomination? Abomination means really hates it. So what's number seven? They that sow discord amongst the brethren. Wow, of all the sins that God could really hate, He hates that? Well, I think every parent in the room can understand. You hit me, I'll do my best not to hit you back. I'll stay under control, but you mess with one of my kids, you're going to see a side of me you haven't seen before. God says, I hate those that sow discord. I'm just saying today, we wouldn't make light of one sin over another. We'd hate all sin. Because Christ died for all our sins. If we're not honest to God, you'll start making excuses for the small sins. Well, this isn't such a big deal. And it's little foxes that destroy us. Thirdly, if we're not honest to God, I'm preaching fast. Are you listening fast? If you're still with me, say amen. We're dishonest to God, we'll be dishonest to service. Now, this really touches my life even a little more so. I give thousands of dollars to missionaries. God uses me to preach all over America. I've won hundreds of souls to Christ. Hundreds. I've taught Sunday school. In fact, I love teaching Sunday school. I love teaching teenagers. I can actually play an instrument for the Lord. 
And if I'm not careful, I can feel like I'm really serving God. I'm pretty good. But if I don't spend time in God's Word daily, if I don't meditate, memorize Scripture, if I don't fast and pray, if I don't have quality prayer life, if I don't witness and tell souls about Christ, then I'm being dishonest to service. I'm overlooking the small things, or what appears to be small. And I'm impressing people and audiences with bigger things. Does that make sense? When I was in third grade, Mike Twitty, who's a good friend of mine, he, uh, he was the most popular kid in third grade. <laughs> he came to school, he had the measles. He came to school, and he gave us, all of us, measles. Everybody loved him when we stayed out of school. All he did was share what he had. And we loved the guy. When people say they can't witness and don't witness, that's just not my call, that's just not my gift, can I help you? You've drunk Satan's Kool-Aid. Jesus said, follow me. Did he not say that, class? Matthew 4, 19. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Let's break that down. Jesus said, I, Jesus, I'm the Son of God. I created the world. I've raised the dead. I've done a few miracles. I think I got this. You follow me, and I know you're insecure, and I know you feel like you don't have a very good vocabulary. You don't know all the Bible answers, and, and, and you don't really care for people, and you're shy, and you're backwards, and you get tongue-tied. And, and I, I know that. I, quite frankly, I, I made you, so I understand you. But if you'll follow me, I'll take upon myself the responsibility to make you a fisher of men. So if we're not fishing, we're probably not following. And if we're following, like Peter, do you remember that night? The Bible says he followed him from afar. He had Jesus in his sights. And quite frankly, most of our churches are filled with people that are following Jesus from afar. They're not winning souls. They're not witnessing. But they do love Jesus. They're just following Him from afar. And they're hanging out with the worldly crowd. They begin to talk like the worldly crowd. Some even go so far as to even cuss. And before long, they actually deny the very one they love. Don't let it ever cross your mind for a moment that Peter didn't love Jesus. But any time you allow distance to come between you and whomever you love, you're going to find yourself denying them. Our churches need to draw nigh to God. The Bible says He'll draw nigh to us. Isn't that what the prodigal son's father did? You draw nigh. You come back to me. I'll meet you out there. You draw nigh to me. I'll draw nigh to you. God says, if we're not doing these small things, 
If we're not being honest to Him in the small areas of life, if you can't hand out tracts, if you can't tell others about Jesus Christ, and yet you appear to be an honest man, something else is governing you. Because if we're not honest in small matters, we're not being governed by honesty in anything. And then, lastly, if we're not honest to God, we can be dishonest to our soul. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If I would speak to you one-on-one, we'd get uncomfortable, I'm sure. But most of us would admit that none of us are right. All of us could improve a little bit. And quite frankly, as a pastor, you would encourage your church, a little better is better than no better. Take a baby step. That's a pastor's heart. Just start heading in the right direction. But quite frankly, folks, the hour is drawing to a close. God's people need to wake up. We need to walk circumspectly and redeem the time for the days are evil. And we need God's power in our churches. Today we're so polished, we have our T's crossed, our I's dotted correctly. We're so well organized, we have beautiful facilities, and I thank God for all that stuff. But most of our churches operate without the presence or the power of God. You read Revelation 3 where it says, He stands at the door and knock. It's not at the at a man's heart to get in to save him. Nothing wrong with applying that, but let's don't forget what he's talking about. He's talking about a New Testament church, our kind of church, where Jesus is on the outside wanting to get in. They've got it so well organized that the people, because they raise the KJV, because they talk about the right standards, But inside, we're bankrupt. We don't have the power of God in us. The salt has lost its savor. We're being trodden under by the foot of men. Some of you old-timers, you need to say amen when I say this. Because the younger generation hasn't seen this. The reason why we old people get upset about the changing in America's You can't help it. You were born in a time where America had already changed and continues to change. And so for you, this is the way America always has been. Maybe for you, we've seen it go from God blessing America to today, we think it's actually capitalism that's what made America great. And today our country's turning into a very scary place to live. Nothing's, nothing's sure. Our, 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 our whole financial system is going to collapse. Everything that we count on is going to be gone. And quite frankly, it might be a help to the church. Because then we will count on God. We say the words, but we really don't depend on them. We need the power of God. The old timers know there was a day in our lifetime that 
It didn't make any difference what denomination your church was. There was a healthy respect for church houses and church people. Now, we would debate amongst ourselves theology. And quite frankly, that's not a bad thing. We want to be challenged. Because if I'm wrong, I want to be corrected. I want to do what's right. There's nothing wrong with a good, healthy debate in truth and theology. But there was always a respect for church people and church houses. Today in America, our culture has shifted. Not only is there a lack of respect, there's an all-out, unashamed, public attack on the church and church people. And we can't do anything about it. We think it's, we got to get another president. we got, we got to turn Congress around. No, we need God to intervene. And He's not going to do that if we're going to live lukewarm Christian lives. If God did that, you know what He'd be doing? Enabling you to live part-time in sin and part-time in the Word. That's not a holy God. That's not even a God of love. He's not going to enable you to sin. He came to save us from our sin. And I'm saying today, God's prescription for revival begins with humbling ourselves. There might be some here today, you've always said you're saved, but deep down in, you know you're not. You just don't want to think about it anymore. Just take a chance. Maybe I said praise God enough to make it into heaven, but deep in your heart, you know you're not saved. You can be a good church member. I mean, Judas Iscariot was one in the Lord's church. And as much as I love Brother Metzinger, he's no Jesus Christ, okay? And if Jesus can have one in his church that's not saved, you take the percentages, and I have a hunch there's more than one or two that are in our church memberships that are not saved. That isn't being condescending or condemning or critical or judging. I'm trying to appeal to people for their eternal destiny. And if you're not honest to God, you'll be dishonest to your soul. I'm a baseball fan. I love to watch baseball, particularly the Cleveland Indians, who, by the way, won the Central Division in the American League last week. And some of you are saying, America, uh, Cleveland Indians, wait a minute, they're, they're the Cleveland Guardians. Yeah, that's what you might call them, but for us old-timers, they're the Cleveland Indians and always will be, Hallelujah. But I like to watch any baseball team. And last year, those of you that are Major League Baseball fans, you know what I'm talking about. Last year was a unique game in the month of June, Pirates against the Dodgers. You remember that uh, rookie third baseman for the Pirates, Cabrian Hayes? He hit a solo home run into right field. And, I mean, it was close. And he hit the base of the foul pole. And, uh, obviously, the fans, Pirate fans, home run. Dodger fans, foul ball. <laughs> so they went to the replay booth. Now that we have technology, we can go check it out. And I mean, they're looking, oh, I mean, forever and ever and ever. And they're playing it on the screen, and we can see it. It hit the foul pole. 
That means it's fair because the, the foul pole means anything on the other side is foul, but the pole itself is in fair territory. Home run! Well, they're meeting forever, and we're thinking, come on, let's go, let's get the game on. Finally, the, uh, the umpire's break comes out. The head chief of umpire comes out and goes, he's out. Out? Where'd that come from? We just wanted to know if it was fair or foul. We thought the whole discussion was, is it fair or foul? They were looking at something else. The runner was out because he didn't touch first base. I'm afraid for some church members that look like they've circled all the bases of what we would say the normal Christian life. That the judgment seems to be a hesitation. We're thinking, come on, it's fair ball. We can all see that. But the judge is looking at something entirely different. He wants to know, did you get saved? Did you touch first base? If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. You know, it's really hard to humble yourself. It really is. That's why some people never go to the altar. Well, I can do it here. Truth of the matter is, you don't. When we kneel, it's an outward expression of our humility before a holy God. It's hard for American Christians, those on the other side, our motherland, where they have kings, no problem for them to bow before the monarch, the king. Here, we can't bow before the king of kings. I'm appealing to you as a church, if we're going to see anything different if we're going to see our lives change at all, if we're going to experience the power of God in our church, there's got to be some folks in here that hear the Spirit. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. Some of us need to admit we don't read the Bible like we should, but we're going to start. Some of us need to admit we aren't winning souls like we should. We're going to start. And it's going to be starting, first of all, by humbling ourselves before God. And admitting He is worthy of our worship. Would you please stand to your feet? If God speak into your heart, I pray that you would come and join me at the altar. And let's humble ourselves before God. Let's take that first step. If God spoke to you this morning about a particular area, talk to Him about it. Don't be rude and ignore Him. Talk to Him about it. He's talked to you. You're here today and you need to be saved. Oh my. I pray that you'll get saved even today. Father, thank you for your love and your blessings to us.
Thank you that you're so patient with us. I would have given up on Bruce Humbert a long time ago. But you're long-suffering. You're merciful. And you keep working in us. You desire to do something miraculous, but you're looking for a specific kind of people. A people whose heart is perfect, totally committed to you. Would you send revival to us, please? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As the music plays, you come and join me at the altar. say anything else but be here after lunch okay one o'clock start our uh, next service do it i would ask the humberts if you could to go back and uh you can uh we uh will begin one o'clock have our service and then uh monday tuesday and wednesday night seven o'clock encourage you to be here that service. Doc, would you just close us close us in?